One of the many things you do while training to be in the FBI is study criminal psychology. And as part of that, they show you pictures of murder scenes. Just picture after picture of mutilated bodies. Now, back in the 80s, when Susan's surf tone was there, the bodies they showed, the corpses, they were exclusively women. Then, at the very end of the year, they gave the warning that they're going to show pictures of murdered men. And before they did, they guaranteed that at least one person in the class would faint, which they did, and that someone would throw up, which they also did. You see, we are not accustomed to seeing images of mutilated men. Even after being exposed to countless images of mutilated women, seeing men was processed differently on a deeply visceral level. And this is bigger than just dead bodies, right? This conditioning relates back to how we see and experience different genders in every single moment of our lives. So today, Susan Surftone is here to talk about that, as well as the many other aspects of her time at the FBI. While she was there in the 80s, she was one of the very few women who were agents. And she was not out of the closet. If you were back then, you could not receive a security clearance. And then just to note, in honor of LGBTQ History Month, we wanted to dip into the podcast archive for this interview with Susan. It was originally taped all the way back in November of 2017. So apart from hearing how my interview skills have changed in the last three years, I think, you will also hear references to Jeff Sessions, who was attorney general at the time. Small things like that I did want to leave in because I think it is terribly fascinating in the worst possible way to hear about how many of these issues concerning power and corruption and ignoring laws, how many of these issues have not only not changed in three years, they've accelerated. They've gotten worse. So on that dark note, let's jump in. I'm Jeffrey Masters, and this is LGBTQ&A with Susan Surftone. First, I think we need to start with the FBI. You were a special agent (laughs) in the 80s. Yeah. That's a pretty male-dominated field, especially for then. Yes, it was. So there couldn't have been many women back then, were there? Um, Not that many. I think think women had been in for eight years before I joined. So what was lacking was women in the supervisory roles, because they hadn't made it up that high yet. So those of us that were there were, you know, bottom of the rung. (laughs) Did the women stick together? Women did what women do. Basically, no. Women aren't like men. Women don't help each other, usually. Oh, that's sad to hear. It is. But it's the truth. And I always tell the truth. No, please do. (laughs) Yeah. So is every woman for themselves? I wouldn't say it's an all-the-time general rule. But most women that do want to get ahead, a lot of them feel that they're better off putting their... They're investing their time with the men that have power. And they don't help other women. And I I have a theory. See, my father played baseball. My father was a pitcher for the Brooklyn Dodgers minor league. And I grew up in a very sports-oriented household where I learned to play on teams and be kind of a team player and understand that a team has to work together. And I learned that in my band, too. And women don't learn that because women of my era didn't play on sports teams. I hope some of the younger girls are learning that now that they're having an, you know, able to play more on, on, on sports teams, that you kind of have to help each other to win. And sometimes there has to be a star 
And sometimes that's the quarterback. Sometimes that's the pitcher or the hit, you know, the hit, the guy that can hit the grand slam home run, like what Hernandez, that's whatever his name is, did for the Dodgers. Women don't learn that lesson and they don't help each other out. They don't know how to work together with other women. Is that probably then reinforced? Back then, there was a lot less women in the workforce overall. So they mm-hmm. just didn't learn that because there weren't women to learn it with? Yeah, I think so. That's what I'm saying. We weren't on teams. We didn't learn that how teams work together. And look at look at what happened to Hillary. Women didn't support Hillary. It's hard to describe unless you've lived in it and you've seen it. And it's hard to describe to men, I think, because they just don't don't see it. They don't get it. Is that there is kind of a jealousy among women. That is a very female thing. It's self-defeating. We'd be a lot further ahead if we learned to work together and support each other. Even with everything you're saying, though, mm-hmm. you still felt like a big accomplishment getting into the FBI originally, though, right? Yeah, it was It was an accomplishment, sure. What was that first day like when you're going there for training, I guess? Scary. I didn't want to be looked upon as weak by the males in my class or the, the instructors who were all male. I wanted to pull my own weight and I wanted to do a good job. I felt good because when I took the entrance exam, if I had been a white male, I would have qualified to get in. So in my own mind, I didn't feel like any exception had been carved out for me because women were allowed to have lower scores because they wanted to get more women in. When I think about the training, I think about learning to shoot guns and Mm -hmm. personal defense, being able to tell if someone's lying, Mm -hmm. try to get information from them without Mm -hmm. them knowing. Is it all those things? Yeah, it's all those things. Plus, it's a lot of academic work. We did a lot of academic work. We did uh, had fascinating classes in uh, criminal psychology. Absolutely fascinating. They were some hard slideshows to look at. I'll tell you that. Do you have an example of one? Murders, bodies, mutilations. And it was funny because... It was, you know, explaining like like the psychology of Ted Bundy. And we were taught by experts in the field, people that had pretty much written the book. Towards the end of the class, they had showed us, of course, it was female bodies that were mutilated, female victims. And they said, at the end of the class, we're going to show you two days of young boys and men that were victims and mutilated. And they said, we can guarantee you that there's going to be some male in the class that's going to faint. He said, you're gonna, the men are going to get sick. They won't be able to handle this. The guys all laughed. Oh, of course. Oh, they can handle anything. Ha, ha, ha. Well, one of them hit the floor. The guy sitting right next to me, thud. The guys were practically running out of the room to get to the men's room so they could vomit, seeing the male body so mutilated. And it's bad, the things they show you. They show you the real thing. And just to clarify, you're saying that they they were made sick by seeing a male body mutilated, right. but they, not a woman's body. Right. And the women were fine seeing the women's body. And what the instructors told us, and these are the guys that, like I said, wrote the book on criminal psychology, said that women are so conditioned in our culture to see ourselves mutilated that it doesn't bother us. But men are not. And when men see it, they it, it just they can't handle it. That's kind of blowing my mind, to be honest. Yeah, it blows your mind when you see it. Yeah, When you actually are sitting there and you're sitting next to the guy that just fainted. I've never heard it put in that way, that mm-hmm. we are conditioned to see women's bodies like that. And it's mm-hmm. nonchalant to us. Yeah. yeah, it is a mind blower, isn't it? It's kind of like the opposite. Like we're conditioned to see women's bodies sexualized and half naked. Mm-hmm. And then we see a naked male body and it's like, oh, wow, that is mm-hmm. a, that's a naked person. That's how we're conditioned. So what were you doing at the FBI after training? After training, I went to the Boston field office and did what every new agent does. You do pretty much um, six months of the background investigation work where you learn to write reports and do interviews and everything. 
And then I was assigned to Bank Robbery Squad. Depositors Trust Bank Burglary out in Medford, Massachusetts, which at the time, and it may still be, I'm not sure, was the largest bank robbery in the history of Massachusetts involving police and the mob and all kinds of things. I think a, a kind a movie was made about it. It wasn't that good a movie. It could have done a lot better. But it was a very exciting case, and it involved quite a bit. Did you enjoy this work? Yeah, it was fun. My mind works to like put together puzzles and put together it it was fun yeah I'd have to say it was just a challenge of of figuring the case out I wanted to work counterintelligence Soviet counterintelligence and uh, there wasn't a lot of that in the Boston office so I got a transfer to New York City where I did work Soviet counterintelligence and I did a lot of the things that you're reading about now in the papers, it hasn't changed that much, frankly. I'm surprised because when I first started reading about, you know, the Russian interference in the election and the dossier and all that, which I read, by the way, and all of, you know, everything, it was like I thought it was going to be way different because, you know, we're in a different age. But it, it's not. It's the same techniques. Oh, you're saying the techniques the have techniques. not changed. Yes, yes. The underlying techniques of uh, spycraft have not changed. Oh, that's surprising to hear. Mm-hmm. It hasn't. And you are not able to be out of the closet in the FBI, Oh, God, no. No. We could have been fired because you weren't supposed to have the security clearance that was necessary. If you were gay, you were automatically disqualified from having the security clearance. We couldn't. We had to stay in the closet, but there were a a lot of us. Yeah, you're saying we. We, yeah. There were a lot of us. We would find each other, and we would, yeah, we knew who we were. So I, I guess like hearing you speak about why you left was, it sounds like you wanted to be out and it sounds like misogyny. Those are all factors that have nothing to do with your happiness, happiness level at the job. Right. I wanted to be out. I think they were starting to get on to me and I didn't want to be fired. And I wanted to pursue music. When John Lennon was killed, it made me question what I was doing for some reason. And I, he was killed on December 8th, 1980. And I had been in the Bureau for almost a year, and I started to question what I was doing with my life. I kind of felt, you know, am I living a lie here, or what am I doing? Then I I kind of started to move towards music. I started informally rehearsing with some people, and when I wanted to play in the clubs, I I had to ask permission. My supervisor and the FBI decided, no, that I could not play in CBGBs, that I could be compromised. And then I had to make a decision, so I decided to go for music because I didn't really feel like I wanted to spend my life in the FBI, in that environment. I didn't feel like I had, no matter how good a job I did, I thought that because I was a woman and because I think they were getting pretty suspicious that I was gay, I wasn't going to go anywhere. I mean, I think some of the agents, some of the supervisors didn't care if you were gay or not personally, they just didn't care, and others really did. So, you know, you were kind of at the mercy of who you were going to work under, and I didn't, I didn't want to do that. When we talk about misogyny, we often also talk about sexual assault and harassment. Mm-hmm. Did you experience any of that? Oh, boy. In training, yeah. Yes. I sure did. There was a guy in my class that wouldn't leave me alone. They, Of course, they didn't know you were gay. Yeah, I did couple agents one time in the and we had a little bar in uh at Quantico and a couple agents had to put fellow trainees had to pull him off of me he was all it was yeah yeah wow yeah 
So before entering the FBI and seeing what mm-hmm. it was actually like, did you kind of assume that you would spend your whole career there? No, I didn't want to practice law. I didn't, I didn't see myself in a law firm. I, I just didn't have that. I don't have that mentality to just go to a law firm and that have that be it. I think I wanted a little more, something a little different, a little more excitement. So when did you realize that though? Because you went oh to God, law school when and I was three. passed the bar. Though. When, <laughs> when I was a kid. Yeah. I think I realized I wasn't normal. Normal in the sense of what was considered normal by society at the time. I always viewed myself, I never saw, I never had a, a gender distinction in my head. Never. That like you're a little, you're a girl and you can't do this. It, I, it, it just never, the fact that it was kind of a man's job didn't make any difference to me. I wanted to do it. The same way with learning to play the guitar the way that I did when I was nine in 1964. I just never saw the distinction in my own mind that I was a girl. I didn't think I was a boy. I don't know. There's, I thought I was a blend. Of, I still think I'm a blend of gender. Really? Yeah. Do you look at non-binary and genderqueer kids today and think that could have been you? Yeah. If I could, was, yes, in a different decade. Yeah, sure. Is it weird to ask like what's keeping you from doing that now? When you get to be my age and I'm 63 and you've lived, I've lived as a, you know, a woman and I don't regret it. There's no regret in it. And it's, I like who I am and you don't want to lose the feminine side of who you are, but there's a masculine side too. So you let them both breathe. And looking at the way you present, you, it looks like you are letting both yeah, breathe. You let them both breathe because they're both in there. It was funny. I took, I took one of those answer.com quizzes on, you know, online for, you know, just to do, you know, a few minutes to kill. And it was like something about what percentage of you is, you know, gender, which percentage are male or female, blah, blah, blah. So I took the test and it came out 75% male, 25% female. But it said your female side has guided you and you it's very important to you. And it was like, okay, how did they know this? How did they know? Because <laughs> it was spot on. What, were, what was the other 50%? Well, it was 75 male and 25%. Female. Oh, 75. Yeah, 75. How funny. Yeah. Not to make gross generalizations, yeah. but you went to Smith in all girls mm-hmm. college. Yeah, I wanted to get a date. <laughs> Were you out at that time? I was. I knew I was out. I wasn't out, out. I was out, oh God, I came out my senior year at Smith. At Smith, when I first went there, there were, of course, a lot of gay women. And of course, a lot of gay women had graduated from Smith. Let's not kid ourselves. But the college was very concerned about it becoming too public because they didn't know how the older alums who donate the money would react and how the parents of the more wealthy students would react who donate the money. So they kind of kept it quiet. They could kind of, you know, you stay over in this corner. Uh, we were in houses. We weren't in sororities. There were no sororities at Smith. That was in the decree of Sophia Smith when she established the college with the help of Reverend John M. Green. There were some young women down at a house called Washburn that were gay, a lesbian, and they started to organize my senior year, and started to become more vocal. And before you know it, it, everybody was out. And it was, my senior year was like the blossoming of lesbians at Smith College. And I was pretty active. I mean, I I must say, I had a good time. What year was this? Oh, that was, I graduated in 76. That's That's when lesbians at Smith became free to be out. 
So you said you went to Smith to get a girlfriend, did you? Oh, I, was, I went to Smith to get a good education, but the idea, but yeah, I mean, you know, you know more chance of getting a date there than that, uh, you know, that was one of the attractions was to be, you know, with women, I figured I'd probably find other gay women. I grew up in a small upstate town, Hudson, New York, which was not particularly gay friendly at the time it is now. It wasn't when I was there. So I wanted to get in an environment where I would probably meet other women my age that were lesbian. Is, is it more, ex- I know that it's legal to be gay and work in the FBI now, mm-hmm. but is it, is it more accepted? Well, I know one good thing that Comey and Mueller, Mueller did it too, and Comey did it, is that they were more open to having gay agents and that gay agents were able to be out. I think there was an alliance and you're going to get happier, more productive agents when you're free to be yourself. And people saw that being gay was not any problem in doing the job at all. But now we have Jeff Sessions and Donald Trump. So now I am concerned that we have all these gay agents wearing rainbow flags on their heads, which means Sessions can transfer them, not give them promotions, and make their life miserable. And now you're identified. See, when we were in, and this is one thing that we had in the 80s, before, you know, before the 90s, and hence forward, when being gay was more accepted in our culture, we, people couldn't find us. So we could operate. It was different. They couldn't find you. They didn't know you were a gay agent. Now you're right out there, Okay. This is what my concern is, is that our community, we're, like I said, we're all wearing the rainbow flag on our head now. And when they want to get us, they're going to get us. So I know that there is not an easy one, two, three answer, but what do we do? Where do we start? We start by recognizing the problem. And I think that a lot of older LGBT members of the community recognize the problem because we lived in it in the 80s, older than me lived in it you know, 60s and 70s, we know what it's like. Like I said, was telling you, I, I knew Stormy there who threw, who threw the first punch at Stonewall. And I had knew another drag king named Mickey who was her friend, and they would tell me stories of what their life was like. They couldn't wear three pieces of men's clothes. They'd be arrested. They were harassed constantly. Okay, that's bad. It got a little better for my generation. And for the generation ahead, next, after me, it got really good. And you, you think you're accepted into mainstream society. Now we've gone back quickly. Our organizational networks aren't there anymore. Our bars are gone. When you're younger, you don't realize that what it's like to have to live in the closet. And you're going back there. The problem is you need to learn your history. You need to learn what it was like, and you have to say, I'm not going there. I'm not going back there. And if you don't, then think about all the other. There's the unborn LGBT kids that are coming along, the young ones that are in the playground that are going to be like you. What are they going to live in? So it really is up to us to stop it. And to stop it, recognize the problem, talk about it, organize. And it is up to us in a way in these bigger cities because mm-hmm. we're going to be less affected right. compared to the, the Bible Belt. Right. And so we do need to be just as loud. We need to be loud where we can be loud because let me tell you, our brothers and sisters in those red states probably can't be loud. Their lives are on the line. So we need to raise a ruckus. Start realizing that we do have something that none of us ever thought we would have to face. I never thought I would face old age. And I am. I mean, I'm 63. That's where I'm headed unless I die. And, you know, I never thought I'd face old age in this environment. Never. Never. 
And for younger people, do you really want to have the, the, the best part of your life spent in this? No. And think of the kids that come, the little kids. You know, there's always going to be gay people. And it's kind of up to us to protect the ground that we, that we earned. Yeah. And, and like I mentioned marriage before, but like it even goes down to, like you said, jobs and housing and medical mm-hmm. treatment and these like basic necessities. Employment. Employment. Yeah, your life, basically. And plus, I've even noticed, I don't know, maybe I'm super sensitive, but I've noticed just a different attitude out in the general public towards me because I'm obviously a lesbian. And I've noticed a different, a little bit of a different attitude sometime in the general public. They're a little more freer to uh, ignore you when you're in a line. They're a little freer to not give you the service that you just watched the nice blue-eyed blonde who's obviously straight get. And if you're saying that in California. Mm-hmm. I'm seeing it. Yeah, in You're saying in a very liberal yeah. states. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Just little subtle differences that I'm saying, hmm, this is like 1985. Okay, we're back there now. Okay. That is incredibly sobering. Mm-hmm. I, I kind of hate leaving it on a... Serious note. Well, but it is a very serious issue. Serious note is we can do things about it. And what you do is educate yourself. Once you know the facts, you take the facts, you organize in a sensible way. We communicate with each other and we go forward by making our voices heard. We have to let the people, the general public know that we're here and we're getting hurt. Yes, the polls say that most people accept us now. Oh, isn't that nice? But they, they do. They, you know, being the general American, most people don't have a problem with us. They don't know what the Trump administration is doing to us. Trump campaigned and said, oh, he was going to be just wonderful to gay people. Well, we lied about that, too. Yeah. Well, thank you for uh, talking and being so candid. I think we need it. We need it. We sure do. Thanks. Yep. After leaving the FBI, Susan has had many reincarnations career-wise, and for the last few years, she has had a surf music band. They actually have a brand new EP coming out this November. The EP is called The EP, so you can't forget it. Now, as always, if you enjoyed this interview, please make sure that you're subscribed and rank us five stars and leave a comment on Apple Podcasts. Especially leaving a comment on Apple Podcasts is one of the biggest ways you can help our show grow. Thank you to everyone who's done that, and thank you to everyone who's going to do that right now. Hint, hint. If you want to find us on social media, the podcast is on Twitter and Instagram at LGBTQPod. That's P-O-D, pod. I'm on there at JeffMasters1. We're brought to you by The Advocate Magazine in partnership with GLAAD. Come check out all of our amazing work at advocate.com and GLAAD.org. All right, I'm Jeffrey Masters, and I will see you next Tuesday. Goodbye.